Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail and we're on chapter 20. Chapter 20. Gang After Glay. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glay and leers naught but grief and pain for promised joy. A quote by Burns. It was really Swizzle who started it all, with an assist going to my pyjamas. It was Swizzle who dived overboard early on the morning after our arrival at Moorhead City and swam for the shore, and it was because I was clad only in pyjamas as I gave chase in the dinghy that I abandoned the chase at the high water mark. As a result, Ernest went ashore after breakfast to collect the dog and spoke to a longshoreman who told him of a beautiful schooner lying in the port. When we went ashore to do our shopping, we went to have a look at this schooner. The Evening Star was certainly a lovely ship, steel-built and 109 feet. She had a 120-foot mainmast glistening above her black hull. A tall, dark man, apparently one of the crew, was standing on the quay covered in paint. He asked us if we had come off a ship. I thought so, he continued, from the way you were looking at her. Did you come in on that little cutter yesterday? Yes, we replied. Arrived in last night. Like to see over the ship? We certainly would. And thus we met Jack, the owner of Evening Star, for such the gentleman in the sweatshirt and the coat of paint turned out to be. When we had looked over every luxurious inch of her, we were invited to stay aboard for lunch, then to bring content round and more or less live on Evening Star for a few days. Then we were asked if we would leave content in New York and join Evening Star for a winter cruise in the Caribbean. The opportunity was too wonderful to miss. Whatever our future plans, we accepted most willingly. The days grew into weeks. Jack and his wife, Millie, could not have been kinder. We went for two sails on Evening Star and then stayed at his home and at the home of friends. It was a wonderful interlude and it was a month after our arrival that we set out once again on our journey to New York. We had been afraid that it would take us some time to get used to life on our own little boat again after the palatial schooner, but within 24 hours we were back in the swing of it, ducking at the right moments when passing below decks and listening for the same noises which are characteristic of any boat. A friendly tug had offered us a tow most of the way to Norfolk and we surged up the waterway in its wake. Only in the open sounds did we suffer some anxious moments, for two years in the tropics had taken much of the resilience out of our horses. Only one, an old cable-laid hemp line, seemed to have sacrificed none of its strength to age and climate. In the early morning, a few days later, we were chugging into Norfolk past the silent shipyards and we brought up at the dock of the old Dominion Marine Railway Company, who were particularly helpful. The local papers must have somewhat overdrawn the picture of our privations, for we were just finishing lunch one day when we heard a woman's voice calling from the quay. Anyone aboard? I went up on deck. A young woman in blue jeans was standing on the jetty. Could you help me unload some stuff from the car? Certainly, I replied, and walked in silence, waiting to see what was happening. We came down to have lunch with you, the young lady continued, so we brought her own food. Fair enough? Ah, fair enough, I said, still trying to orientate myself. I'm so glad you didn't ask questions, but just accepted the situation, said the young lady. I suppose I've become a little bit fatalistic, I replied, 
We don't worry about things, we just let them happen and see what develops. Sometimes that is all that can be done. So we had a second lunch, provided by our two patronesses, who would even remember to bring some canned dog food for Swizzle. We were very touched by such spontaneous kindness. It is most embarrassing sometimes when one can do so little in return. We made a disturbing discovery while we were in Norfolk. We found a soft spot in the mass just above the hounds, and decided that it must have been a relic of the Guiana mishap when the barge had snapped off our bowsprit. The strain on the topmast had probably caused a small horizontal crack which, though invisible beneath the paint, had been sufficient to start the rot. There was nothing to be done but fish the spar temporarily, use only the small mainsail and choose the safest route north. So instead of standing out to sea from Norfolk as we had intended, we set off up the Chesapeake. It was in the Chesapeake that, for half an hour, we were subjected to the strongest wind we had found since leaving England. It came screeching out of a purple cloud in the west and sent content under her small mainsail and double reef staysail, leaning and staggering through the vicious little waves. The Delaware also bared its teeth at us and we thrashed down the estuary in a smother of foam and breaking waves. The rollers were surging into the Cape May Canal. We rounded up opposite it, lowered the mainsail and ran it under staysail alone and reached the shelter of Cape May Harbour. 120 miles now separated us from New York, the last leg, and no more than one good day's sailing. We would leave content there, and then hasten south to join Evening Star. As soon as the wind had moderated, we set out from Cape May Harbour. The sea was calm, for the breeze came off our port quarter over the land. Nothing could stop us now, and we sailed gently up the coast. It was smooth enough to do a little typing below and towards evening the breeze fell and we motored for two hours until it reappeared on the starboard quarter. Don thought it was backing and would develop into another northeasterly blow and favoured going into Atlantic City, but it seemed a pity not to continue as long as possible. If we could get well round the Barnegat lightship we might yet make New York no matter what the wind did. The lights of Atlantic City glowed ahead and then came towards us in lines of twinkling dots and dancing, flashing neon signs, and passed two or three miles to port. We hauled our wind a little, and stood away from the shore on a starboard reach. The sea room might be useful later. Next morning, we were making good progress, but the wind had started backing again and was increasing in strength. By mid-morning, we could no longer lay our course, and by noon it had flipped into the northeast and was blowing a gale. The Gulf Stream was throwing up a steep sea and progress was negligible. Whatever might be the advantages of Content's boomless mainsail, efficiency on the wind was not one of them, and though we could gradually have made up against wind and sea, the prospect of nearly a hundred miles of it was very unpleasant. There were two alternatives, to run back into Cape May or Atlantic City for shelter, or to ride it out for a while hoping for a moderation. Rather than lose what we had already gained, we decided to heave to and stay out there for twelve hours to see what developed. We sheeted the reef staysail to weather, left the small mainsail as it was, though one reef would have made things more comfortable, lashed the helm slightly down, and went below. Though spray was finding its way through the skylight, our bunks were dry, so we turned in. There was nothing else to be done. During that afternoon and evening, Content wallowed violently but safely on the port tack, making less than a knot to seaward. My stomach gave me no encouragement to eat, but Don managed to have a snack. Ernest prepared himself a sandwich, but in the process he gradually developed a loathing for the thing. 
He laid it on the saloon table by his bunk and eyed it from time to time. But next morning, it still lay there, a forlorn and slightly waterlogged monument to the discomforts of the night. By midnight, the weather had shown no signs of changing, and it looked as if we were in for the usual three-day northeaster. Yet we were loath to give up all the ground we had gained, so we elected to have a look at Atlantic City entrance. Our information on this inlet was extremely vague, and our only guide was the information from a friend that the channel had been changed since the issue of our chart, and that the old one probably no longer existed. In the darkness, while the boat pitched and rolled and the wind carried stinging spray over the decks, we lowered the mainsail with some difficulty and ran down the coast under staysail alone. Shortly before dawn, we saw the first lights of the city, and it seemed that the wind and sea had moderated slightly. Daylight showed the buildings ahead, and within a few hours we were close off the entrance. The inlet is a tricky one in a seaway. At one point in the approach we must have passed over a bank. Broad-backed waves reared up around us and came tumbling and roaring down on content stern, but she took them well and seemed to suffer no inconvenience from her wide transom. We picked out the first of the boys and set our small mainsail double-reefed. The two seaward boys gave us the line of the channel. Ernest stood forward searching for marks. Don went below to prepare the engine for starting as a safety measure. We deciphered the boys, saw the lane of clear water leading between the ranks of breaking seas and plunged in. We had the anchor ready for immediate use and listened to the steady bonk-bonk of the engine. There was a moment of anxiety as we took the bend in the channel, then suddenly we were in the smooth water of the harbour with the surf behind us. We tied up in the inner basin and rushed ashore for coffee. It was a week later that the tug skipper came to see us with the offer of a tow. For most of that week we had been hemmed in by the same northeasterly wind, and after that we had been stopped just effectively by a flat calm. On this day there was still the calm, with no immediate prospect of any wind. The tug was towing a pile driver and a large wooden barge to New York, and we knew that it would not set out unless towing conditions were good. The weather forecast said no wind. A special forecast by telephone from New York said the same. We accepted his offer. We formed up on Sunday afternoon, and within an hour were dipping past the wondering crowd on the promenade. Behind the powerful seagoing tug was the pile driver, with its gaunt structure of iron. Behind that again, the barge, and bringing up the rear, at the very end of a long and very heavy warp, was content herself. It was rather like Christopher Robin's procession. My dear papa, mamma and me, the poodle and the pug. This appeared to be an excellent method of travel. It only required someone at the tiller to keep content from yawing from side to side. The rest of us were free. The evening passed pleasantly, though a little breeze sprang up. Towards evening, the breeze increased. It swung slowly round from south through northeast to east and then northeast. One could imagine it summoning the elements. Okay, boys, here comes the content again. Let's take up our positions. We had nosed out of Atlantic City once during the week we were there, but exactly the same thing had happened and we had returned to our basin, having achieved no more than the sighting of two whales. When I went below at ten o'clock, it was blowing only a moderate breeze and we were bobbing along quite happily. It was midnight when Don called me. I say, Bill, something funny seems to be happening. The barge ahead of us is coming closer. That made me jump out of my bunk and I clambered out on deck with Ernest at my heels. The scene had changed completely during the last two hours. It is blowing a gale now and rain is screaming across the decks. 
Content is lurching about in the seas which are steep and crested. Then you look forward. Not forty feet away looms the dim bulk of the timber barge, and as you watch, it creeps closer. The tug must be lengthening her tow lines, and the barge, floating high out of the water, drifts down on us faster than we can drift out of its way. What can we do? Cut the rope? That would have little effect. The barge would still overhaul us. Start the engine? Too risky. Spray has got a board into it. Would take too long. Set the mainsail or staysail? The staysail, yes. That's our only chance to get the staysail drawing before the barge reaches us. So I dash forward and balance on the foredeck. The staysail is lashed onto its stay to keep it clear of the towing line, and wet fingers pluck at the lashing. Don and Ernest are aft, trying to direct our backward drift. I can hear Don shout, "Which way the tiller? Tiller to starboard!" I yell back. I glance over my shoulder. Ye gods! The great lumbering form of the barge is alongside us, a few yards to starboard. Suddenly, the tug's searchlight knifes back through the darkness as though she were glancing anxiously over her shoulder. It is a nightmare scene. Like some hideous monster, the barge plunges and wallows beside us, while the waves hiss along her side. In the glare of the light, which is shining down the far side of the tows, I can see the plumes of spray bending back over the bows. The lashings on the staysail are free, and I am sliding it down its stay to shackle it in position. Everything happens within a few seconds. The barge drops its bow opposite our stern, then slowly, like a beast of prey, she swings towards us. For a moment, the square overhanging bow rises madly up, then plunges headlong into the sea again. Up high above us, then crash! I can feel the boat shudder as the weight falls on our stern. In the darkness, I can see Ernest and Don struggling to keep us clear, dwarfed by the black mountain above them. The staysail is free, and I jump for the halyard. But as I do, out of the sea alongside us rises the glistening, snake-like steel towing cable of the barge. It tautens and flings itself against the shrouds. The navigation light is buckled and bent. Sparks fly from the rigging as the steel cuts through our runner. Don and Ernest duck down into the cockpit as it lunges against the dinghy and sends it crashing across the deck. Thump! The barge hits our stern again, and the towing cable rips up a twelve-foot length of our bulwark and sends it spinning into the darkness and rain and spray. Now suddenly we are clear. The staysail is up and pulling. About ninety seconds too late. At the same time, the tug takes up the pull on its tow, and we see the heaving, lurching barge moving slowly ahead through the seas. And we take up our position again. What's the damage? Well, amazingly little, really. Ernest replied. Dingy didn't get a scratch. The metal gaff crutch is flattened, and the top of the transom is displaced a bit. As best we could, we examined Content's scars, but her staunch construction had carried her through without any serious structural damage, and there was no point in cutting adrift now. For though it was still blowing a gale, the heavy line absorbed any shocks, and we were lying as though to a great sea anchor. The tug, quite unaware of our little excitement, was holding its charges head to wind, and not until next morning was it able to make any headway. In the afternoon, long before we had expected it, the Ambrose lightship loomed up through the misty greyness ahead. Two hours later, we cast off in the Narrows to chug up New York Harbour on our own. In a cold, dank October dusk, we crawled past the lighted docks and dodged the ferries which bustled across the Sound. Then. Quite suddenly, a wall of lighted windows stretching high into the fog above us barred our path, and we found ourselves 
at the lower end of Manhattan, we sidled thankfully into a berth. We were in New York at last, but here we had to alter our plans again. We were very sorry to hear that Jack would not, after all, be able to go off on Evening Star for the Caribbean cruise, which was disappointing, but could not be helped. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.